Go ahead and take a seat. <laughs> this corner up here is not having it. There we go. All right. How are you doing this morning? Good? Well, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at H2O. Um, I've been here for a number of years now, uh, and uh, I'm going to go through my usual Buffalo spiel for, so, for those of you that have been around enough to know what that is. My, part of my role over the next uh, year or so is that I'm going to uh, be preparing to transition out uh, to plant a new church in Buffalo at the University at Buffalo, another H2O. And so... Um, to some of you, that may seem random. To some of you, you're probably tired of hearing about it, but I'm going to share about it every single time that I'm up here. So, um, yeah, over the next year or so, myself and a team of people are going to be kind of preparing to move there and begin something new in hopes that God would use it to extend his kingdom, to invite more people into his family. And so uh, I share this with you for a couple reasons. Uh, uh, first, I don't believe that our choice to do this is unique, and I would love for our church to be a people uh, that are genuinely considering how we can um, serve God first, to seek God's kingdom first when we're considering what to do with our lives. And so that even as you look for jobs, when you graduate, when you're considering what's next for you, if, if you move on from the University of Cincinnati, um, what would it be like to consider as your first priority what it's like to extend God's kingdom? Where, where should I go? What should I be doing um, uh, in that way, Right. Planting a church, I think, is a great way to, to do that. Uh, spending time overseas for a year or two after you graduate, I think that's a great way to, to put God's kingdom first. And, and even potentially remaining here at UC and continuing to invest in students while you get a job um, is another great way to do that. There's a lot of great ways to do that. Uh, but So I share that first for that reason, and second, because the door is not closed for you to come with us to Buffalo. We are going to be moving there uh, this coming summer in 2022. I know some of you may not be able to even make that. You might not be graduated yet, but uh, I would hope that some of you would consider joining us in 2023 and beyond in kind of a second wave uh, because we'll still need a lot of help to continue to expand God's kingdom there. So there's my pitch. Um, in any case, we are in the middle of our series in Romans. Okay, and so uh, in chapters one through three, Paul, he makes a case that we are all sinners and all of us fall short of being able to please God. Uh, he kind of is just beating this over and over and over again, that we've all sinned and that as a result, we are all deserving of God's wrath. And he's really trying to make clear to us uh, a handful of things. First, that we're not by default close to God. Second, that we've sinned against him and we're under his wrath. Third, that even our attempts to earn God's favor are weak and incapable of saving us. And fourth, that as a result of all this, we are desperately in need of a Savior. And so last week, uh, Grant went over Romans 4 and how none of this is new, right? Uh, this has been this way for a long time, for almost all of human history. Uh, we have been sinful and deserving of God's wrath and how even before Jesus came to earth, people were saved by faith and not by their good deeds. And so for uh, three weeks straight, for uh, Romans 2, Romans 3, and Romans 4, we went through an entire chapter. This week, we're going to start to slow it down a little bit more. Uh, we're going to be going through Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. So um, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, um, that's great. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen for you. And so before we dig in, let me just pray for our time here. God, um, God, you're good, and we want you to speak. God, we know that you're here wherever 
uh, two or more are gathered in your name, that you are present, Lord, and we just ask that you would move in our hearts and that you would speak to us here. God, help us to, to hear from you and to love you more as a result of our time here today. And so uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, and so, so Paul goes to great lengths at the beginning of Romans to uh, uh, kind of explain and show us how we're justified, that nobody is exempt from judgment that comes from God, and that all have fallen short, both the Jew and the Greek, right? Both the church kid and the person that didn't grow up with any kind of religion. And he says that even if we wanted to, we could not be justified by our good deeds or works before a holy God. And so he begins this chapter by saying, therefore, right, as a result of this truth, as a result of the reality that we are only justified by faith in Jesus and not by our works, we are given something, right? We have something now that we did not have before. And there's a handful of things that this includes. It's peace and access, afflictions and hope. And so uh, these are just some of the things that we have as a result of our faith in Jesus. And he says, therefore, since we've been saved by our faith in Jesus, we now have, and he begins by saying, we now have peace. And this is probably the most significant thing that we have if we have faith in Jesus. We have peace. And so Paul says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace in God, so, or peace with God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have peace with God? Right? Why do we need peace with God to begin with? I think that assumes that we were once enemies with God. Uh, some of you, that may not be a surprise. If you grew up in church, that'd probably be common uh, knowledge for you. Others of you, that may be difficult to understand, but um, the scriptures teach us, the Bible teaches us that we're not inherently in good standing with God, right? We don't, we're not good by default. They teach us that we're actually the opposite. Like, um, you know, when I first meet somebody, my default position towards them, generally peace, right? I don't lead with, you know, wanting to punch somebody in the face or something like that, right? Like, I generally have an attitude of peace toward people that I meet, no, I lead with, you know, saying hello, asking your name. Why? Because I'm not their enemy. But the scriptures teach us that our position with God is that we have made ourselves enemies of him. That we would be at peace with him except that we have made ourselves enemies. That we're all sinners. That we're all people that have done wrong in the sight of God. And that because he is perfect, holy, and just, we can't be in his presence. And instead, we're deserving of judgment. We are far from God by default, and we can do nothing to change that. We can't work hard enough, or we can't do enough good things to, like, tip the scales in our favor. Because God is completely holy and perfect, and we are not close. We're not even close. Our state, apart from faith in Jesus, is that we are his enemies. We are not at peace with him. And while I do think that sometimes we like to think that we're mostly good, 
The Bible teaches the opposite. It teaches that we have a debt that is impossible for us to pay. In, in Matthew 18, uh, there's a parable that Jesus teaches called the parable of the unforgiving slave. And in this parable, um, there's a master and a slave. And the slave owes his master 10,000 talents. Right? Talents is just a currency. And uh, because uh, the slave knows that he can't pay this debt, he begs and pleads for forgiveness and mercy. And the master forgives his debt uh, in his mercy. And the slave, that same slave, later has a debt that's owed to him uh, from somebody else. That's 100 denarii, which is just another kind of currency. And the, the person that owes him begs for his mercy in a similar fashion. And the slave refuses to forgive him this debt. And the master is very angry uh, because, right, the master forgave him this huge debt. And, and the slave would not forgive this other person a smaller debt. And so uh, the master throws him in jail until he can pay his debt. Now, in this parable, the slave is owed 100 denarii, uh, which is about 100 days wage. Um, so not an insignificant amount of money. Um, you know, that's uh, typically a denarius. That's what was a day's wage. So, uh, but a, t- a single talent was worth around 6,000 denarii, okay? And so that's about 16 years worth of work. And he owed his master 10,000 of those talents. And so that means that he owed his master around 164,000 years worth of work. And he said, I'm going to throw you in jail until you can pay every last penny. This debt is unpayable. And that's what Jesus intended to communicate with that parable. And Paul, the writer of the book of Romans, he knows this. He knows that we couldn't pay our debt if we tried. We couldn't do enough good things to, to earn God's favor. And so he spent the last four chapters building that argument that we can only be saved by grace through faith and that apart from that, we are not at peace with God. But now, if we have placed our faith in Jesus because of the death or of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can be at peace with God. And he continues to describe this um, as, though, as, as having access to God access, which I think is a really interesting word that he throws in there. Now, you might think about access uh, like having access to somebody's Netflix account. Pretty easy. You get a username and password, and you log in, and you have all of the access, you know, full access to their account. You can watch whatever you want on Netflix. But it might be more helpful to think about access in terms of having access to a person, especially like a powerful person. Like, how much access do you have to the president, for example? If you wanted to communicate with the president, how would you go about doing that? You'd probably write them a letter or something, right? And then a bunch of people would probably read that and discern whether or not it's worth even putting in front of the president's eyes. But if you wanted to have even more access, if you wanted to have a consistent kind of access with the president, you'd probably have to have uh, some sort of privilege. You'd probably have to either work alongside them, be a family member or, or a really close friend, right? Otherwise, you're not getting access to the president. I think with God, this is all the more significant because most examples that we see in Scripture of people that are standing before God and just being in his presence, they result in these people fearing for their life because, they're so, because God is so holy. Uh, in Isaiah, um, Isaiah is having this vision, and he's seemingly in God's presence, and he writes, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So like, God is so holy that Isaiah thinks he's going to die by being near him. I mean, imagine standing before a God that's so immeasurably holy and good that because of your sin and your imperfection, you feel like you're going to die just by being next to him. And yet, Paul writes that now, because of the blood of Jesus, this is the same God that we can have full access to because we are at peace with him. And that is so intense. Like, a God that we would have died from just being in his presence now because of Christ, that same fear doesn't even exist. We have complete peace and full access. This means that here on earth, we have a kind of unique access to God through prayer and connection to him by his Holy Spirit. Right? A, a unique access and a unique intimacy. We get to walk with him. We get to interact with him. We get to speak with him and hear from him. And it also means that we get to dwell with him in his fullness forever in heaven when we die. Jesus describes this as having eternal life. We have true life here on earth, something that we couldn't have before, and that lasts from now until the end of time. And nothing else can give us this kind of life. No other thing. Not your uh, earthly desires, not your dream job, not your dream family or spouse, no amount of money or success, no amount of earthly purpose, only God can give us life and life abundant through Christ. And we have that when we have peace and access to him. Peace and access. And so Paul, he goes on to say that not only do we have peace and access with God as a result of our faith-based salvation, but he also says that we have something else. Look at this. In Romans 5, 3 and 4, it says, not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And so, not only does it say, hey, we have peace and access to God now, despite all of our sin and all of our inability to earn God's favor because of Christ, if we have faith in Him, we have a kind of unique peace and access to Him, but also, we have affliction, which, <laughs> not super fun, right? Like, I don't hear that, and it's like, sick. Like, I don't think that way. But Paul seems to, and, and he says uh, that we have affliction and that it produces something in us. Now, what do you think that word means, afflictions? Uh, some of your translations might say troubles, might say tribulations or, or trials. Uh, same idea, but what do you think that means? Does that mean having like a tough day at work or in, in the classroom? Does that mean uh, persecution for your faith? Maybe it means temptation or struggling with sin. Maybe it means shortcomings, uh, really just struggling with your humanity. You know, afflictions, it's, it's a pretty general and broad thing that he's saying here. Uh, Paul isn't super specific, and I think that's intentional. My guess is that he's referring to any kind of difficulty or hardship you may experience as a believer in Jesus. And so uh, many of these hardships and afflictions that Paul experienced were physical, right? Like he was beaten and imprisoned for his faith. But many of the afflictions that he experienced were not that way, right? He experienced a lot of grief as well. Grief over, uh, you know, death from his brothers and sisters in Christ or grief over sin even. He, he, later in Romans 7, he's grieving over his struggles with sin. 
Uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, he also grieves over other people's sin, right? People's, uh, people that he cares about struggling with sin. He's, gr- he's grieved by this. Affliction, troubles, temptation, uh, uh, problems, difficulties. Th- these are all very broad, and I think it's that way intentionally. And I, I don't know where some of you guys are at right now. I've talked to a lot of you and uh, some of you, tough spot. Others of you may be doing really, really well. But you might be going through something right now. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged by something that's going on in your life. Maybe you're just exhausted emotionally. Maybe you're struggling or distressed. No matter where you are, we all have affliction some of the time. And so Paul says that we have affliction, and then he says, what does he say about it? He says that we boast in it. We rejoice in it. I don't know about you, but that's not typically what I do with my difficulties. But this theme is consistent in the scriptures, in the Bible. You can find it all over the place. Rejoicing in our afflictions, it's something that we see a lot, a lot. And what I've noticed in my time as a believer in Jesus is that as Christians, we may see this in the Bible. And we may hear about it on Sunday. Uh, we may talk about it in our Bible studies and think, wow, like what a great thing. Like Paul, when he was in prison, he was praising God for that. That's really cool. And, and we're fine with talking about it, but we hate to practice it. We hate to practice it. Um, this week at our staff meeting, so we, on Mondays we have our kind of staff meeting for uh, the people that work for our church. And right before then we have a prayer time. And John, uh, one of our staff members, he shared um, a scripture in Philippians 4, 8. It says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. And so John shared that before our prayer time, and he asked us to share some good things that God is doing in our lives, um, uh, either in our lives or in our church, um, so that during our prayer time, we could praise God for that, right? That we could praise God for the good things that he's doing. Um, now, for me, uh, I ended up not sharing anything. Um, I, I was kind of processing through that, and I was processing through even like, why can I not you know, come up with something good to share during this time. Um, and uh, I would not say I'm an optimistic person. Um, for those of you that know me, that's not a shocker to you. In the past, I would have said I'm a realistic person. Um, now I know that that was just me. Uh, I feel like a lot of pessimists say they're realists, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, and you know, so I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, why can I not come up with something good that God is doing in my life? Like, is it because I'm such a pessimist? Because I'm so negative? You know, maybe. Um, is it because that my mindset is so critical that, you know, if, if something good happens, I don't even bother to think too long on it or, or be thankful for it. So later on, I don't even remember that it happened, you know, because I'm too focused on the negative. I don't know, probably, probably a little bit of that. I wasn't sure. All, all I knew was that there's been a lot of things going on in my life that I would say have been difficult. Uh, I've been stressed, I've been overwhelmed, trying to take care of my friends, trying to take care of my relationship with God, trying to make wise decisions for our church, 
trying to make disciples, trying to share the gospel with people, trying to prepare for a church plant, trying to shepherd this church well. And, and you know, I felt really overwhelmed and exhausted. And as we began to pray, after we were done sharing, I, I just was compelled to come to the scripture in Romans 5 and just began to realize that thinking about good things, the good things that God is doing, praising him for those good things, is not at odds with our difficulty. So I'm going to say that in a different way. Um, Romans 5.3 and Philippians 4.8, they're not at odds with each other. And I don't think Paul thought that they were at odds, right? This to say, I think it would have been totally appropriate for me to just share that, hey, I've been pretty emotionally exhausted. Uh, I've been, I've felt stretched thin, right? And that that's a good thing that God is doing in my life. That is something good God is doing in my life. Now, why? Why is that a good thing? Why is that something worth rejoicing over? Why is that something worth thanking God for? Here's what it says. Afflictions lead to endurance. Endurance leads to proven character. And proven character leads to hope. So we're going to go through that piece by piece. Paul says that our afflictions, our difficulties, and our trials, they produce something in us. They produce endurance, and that endurance produces character. The Lord uses the difficulties in our lives for our good. And one major way that he uses it for our good is by sharpening us, by developing our character, and making us more like him. And this scripture here in Romans 5 has been so valuable to me because, again, I've just been dealing with a lot of difficult situations in our church lately, uh, and I'm doing my best to care for our church and our people well, uh, but I also can't help but feel like I'm destined to let people down. And that's pretty anxiety-inducing for me. It's emotionally taxing. It's difficult. And difficult seasons have a way of taking some of the most deeply embedded lies in our hearts and, and bringing them right up to the surface. And Satan will have a field day with it if he can. With our afflictions, with our difficulties. If he can, he wants to lead us away from God and toward despair. But look, Paul is telling us that something good is going on even in the difficulty, even in the affliction. That God is producing something in us, that he's making us more like him. He's developing our endurance to continue to pursue him. He's developing our character so that we would love God more tomorrow than we love him today. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Listen, do not despise the afflictions do not despise the difficulty, the trial. The Lord is using it to develop Christ-like character in you, and he's using it for your good. And you might, may not be able to see it. Right? You may not be able to see it, and it might hurt, and it might be painful and difficult. And still, God sees it. He's not surprised. And if you're a follower of Christ, he's using it for your good. 
is using it for your good. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 16 and 17 says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, same guy that wrote this, pretty relatable passage to what we're talking about today. A couple things that feel super relevant. First, he says at the end of this passage that our troubles, that our afflictions, our difficulties, he says that they're light and momentary. Now, we can all agree difficult seasons and afflictions do not presently feel light and momentary, right? Agree? Doesn't feel good when it's happening. Like when we're in the thick of it, I would say feels the opposite of that. Doesn't feel light, feels unbearable. Okay? Doesn't feel momentary, wonder when it's going to end. Right? But Paul says light and momentary. Why? Compared to what? Well, uh, the, the most obvious thing that he's most definitely speaking about here. First and foremost, he's talking about how light and momentary these difficulties are compared to eternity, right? Compared to what it's going to be like when we're with God forever. Compared to the eternal work that God's doing in our hearts and compared to the restoration that's coming when we're face to face with God for all eternity. That's what he's talking about there, but I can also say, I can also say that from experience, the things that I was dealing with and afflicted by 10 years ago feel light and momentary now. Right? The things I was so worried about when I was 20 seem almost silly now. And I suspect in 5, 10 years, the things that I'm stressed about, I'm overwhelmed by, the, the difficult season that uh, maybe I'm in right now, the things that make me feel hopeless and discouraged and hard, I suspect those will feel light and momentary too. Light and momentary. But the other thing I notice is that Paul says that we're being inwardly renewed day by day. Now, I want to clue in on that phrase, day by day, because a lot of phrases Paul could have used there, right? He could have said, hey, Inwardly, we were renewed all at once when we placed our faith in Jesus. Could have said that, right? Not an uncommon phrase in the Bible. But that's not what he says. He says day by day. The renewal that's happening inside of you is a process. It's a process. Be patient with it. Don't despise the process. There are some things going on inside of you that you can't see, but God is still moving, and he loves you, and he loves you enough to dig into the depths of your heart and uproot things that shouldn't be there. But that is not a process that's likely to happen quickly. You know, I, I, when I first became a believer, I met a guy um, uh, at a local church back home. I was on co-op um, back home in my hometown near Canton, Ohio. Yeah, And um, he was just telling me his story and how he came to Christ. And um, one of the cool things about his story was that the moment that he placed his faith in Jesus, his addiction to hard drugs just left him. 
Like he felt it leave and never went back. And I heard that and I was just like, wow, like thank God for that. That's so cool. And I, I just, I know that God does awesome things like that. He's powerful. He's capable of healing people like that. And we should ask, right? We should ask for things like that. We should ask for God to move in us in that way. We should ask him to do miracles in our lives and in our hearts. And yet, that's not always God's plan for us. A lot of the time, it's a process. My story was not like his, right? I, I became a believer, and uh, a lot of the things that I struggled with before I came to know Christ, a lot of those things that I used to struggle with remained even after I placed my faith in Jesus. Right? One of those things was my porn addiction. I, I prayed and prayed and pleaded and begged God to take that away from me. I begged him. Just take it away. It feels so difficult for me. It feels impossible at times. It feels hopeless. And I keep going back to the same thing that I know isn't good for me. And you know what? I begged and, and, and asked God over and over and over again to take it from me. And he didn't. He didn't do that. He never rem like miraculously removed that desire from my heart. He never miraculously removed that addiction from my life. And it took years and years of hard work and prayer and effort to grow in that, to, to, to uproot this addiction from my life. This is what I want you to see. Those days of, of, of despair feel light and momentary now. And two, I strongly believe that God developed my character so much more. Developed me into a better son, a better Christian, a better follower of Jesus because of the process. Because of the day by day by day renewal that he was working in me. And it was slow. But it was so good for me. And I see how God was much more interested in, in, in what was going on in my heart than fixing just this external problem. What's been your difficulty? For, for many of you, I suspect this entire time that that thing has come right up to the surface. You know, it might not be sin-related. For me, right now, it's not, right? It's circumstantially, there's just a lot going on that have caused me a lot of stress and anxiety and difficulty. But, but God is not blind to this. And he's doing what he said he would do in this passage in Romans 5. He's developing our endurance to pursue him. He's developing our character to make us more like him. And he tells us, rejoice in the affliction. Thank God for the affliction. And, and that's not, right, that's not just fluff, right? Paul isn't asking us to be delusional about the hard stuff that's going on in our life. He isn't asking us just put a smile on and pretend it's not there. No, that's not what he's saying. He says, see it, acknowledge it, and praise God for it. Why? We can rejoice 
in these afflictions, in these difficulties, because we know that God is at work. He's at work. He's doing something. He hasn't abandoned us. He's taking care of his children. He loves us. And he loves us enough to work in the depths of our hearts. It's not all for nothing. But even that, that's not really the final thought that Paul leaves us with, right? He says that affliction, it leads to endurance, and endurance leads to proven character, and proven character leads to hope. He says hope. Now, hope for me, uh, I would say most of the time when that comes up for me in in the scriptures, I'm a little confused by it. Because hope, I think, uh, most immediately seems kind of contrary to faith. Hope has this connotation in our culture of uncertainty, right? Like, I hope I get a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. I don't know if that's going to happen, right? But I hope that that happens. Or I hope I get accepted into UC as a student. Don't know, but I hope so. Hope that my Amazon package is there when I get home, <laughs> right? But, but Paul doesn't talk about it that way. Um, John Piper, he defines biblical hope as a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. A confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. And this seems more consistent, I think, with what we see in the Bible, um, uh, that, that it's not a kind of hope that suggests uncertainty, okay? Uh, when Paul says this in Romans 5, 5, he says, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us, right? He expresses that hope in a kind of confident manner, right? He says it's not going to disappoint And what he's saying is that as God works something inside of us, as he uses our afflictions and our difficulties to produce good, godly character in us, we become more certain that that what we believe is true. Right? We get to see firsthand with, with front row seats that God is real and he's moving. He's doing something in us. He's doing something in our hearts. He's doing something in in, in the lives of the people around us. And through this, we become reminded of and more confident in the reality that Jesus has saved us, right? That we are children of God now. We are witnesses to the reality that that God has a plan, that he's working in us, he's restoring us, he's renewing us, he's doing something, he's changing us into his likeness, and that someday he's going to return and he's going to set everything right. That he's going to do away with all sin and evil and that we'll live forever with him in his fullness, that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and do away with pain. And he's going to restore us completely and restore our world completely. This is the hope. And he's confident that this hope we have is not going to disappoint us. You know, one of the things I saw God do in me when I first became a believer is that he just began to change my heart for people. Right? I, I became a follower of Jesus, and I just saw how God was changing me from the inside out, starting to change the things that I care about, moving away from the things that were more selfish and me-focused, the, the dreams, the career, and moving towards caring about people and loving people well and, and trying to invite them into God's family. Right? I began to change and care about the kingdom of God more and more and more. And I think early on, this was something that developed a lot of confidence in me, just a lot of confidence that God was doing something in my life, that he's real. I developed my hope in him. And even now, I I take a a look back at like all of the things that God has done in my life to this point. 
right? Ever since I became a believer up till now. And it's like, man, like that gives me a lot of confidence and faith and trust that God is real. He's alive. He's doing stuff in my life. Right? God is here. He's moving. He sees me. He cares. And he's still my father. And so Paul is reminding us not to despise the hard stuff, not just because, you know, there's this personal benefit. God is doing something in us. He's changing us. He's making us into to, to better believers and followers of him, but also because he knows that as God brings us through these afflictions, as he brings us through the trouble and the trial and develops us, it's also going to develop our hope and our confidence in God, our trust in him. It's going to strengthen our intimacy with him, and it's going to grow our love for him. So, in all this, what would it look like for you to rejoice in the hard stuff? Right? I understand that that doesn't sound, it seems crazy, right? And I don't know where you're at. Um, maybe you're in a season of life where not a lot of difficulty going on right now. But I know for some of you, you're just being rinsed with trials. I know that that's true because I've had the conversations. What would it look like for you to rejoice in it, to thank God for it? I want us to see that the effect, right, that the result of these difficulties and afflictions we go through, the work that God is doing in our hearts, it's, it's worth it. <laughs> it's so worth it. And on the other end, it will feel light and momentary. And you will see that God can be trusted. So here's what I want you to do. Um, we're going to pray. But I just encourage you during this time, to, to worship, like during worship, to just thank God for the hard stuff. To praise him for it. And even to just try and see what he might be doing. because it's, it's praiseworthy. We can thank God for the difficulty because we know we can trust that he's going to do something good in us. So let's pray. God, um, Lord, we know that you're good. God, even in the difficulty, even in the trial, even in the trouble, God, help us to, to, to trust you, to understand and believe that you're good. God, that you're a good father, that you desire to give good gifts to your children. God, and that you love us enough to, to bring us through difficulty for our good. God, knowing that on the other end, it's going to feel light and momentary, knowing on, that on the other end, uh, we'll be uh, uh, better sons and daughters of you. God, that we'll love you more as a result of the trial and the difficulty, that we'll We'll, we'll seek you more. God, we'll see that you can be trusted. Lord, you're good to us. We love you. And we pray all this in your name.